All right, go ahead, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. At this church, you guys know, we go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And one of the reasons we do that is that that allows the Word of God to dictate what we preach on. So rather than me picking the topics I like to teach on, we go verse by verse through the entire book of the Bible, and that way we have to cover the entirety of God's counsel and words of wisdom for our life. And so we are working our way through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 8. Go ahead, open up to there. Let me pray for our time in the Word. Jesus, would you have your way with us right now? As we study your Word, we want to be faithful We want to be approved workmen, rightly handling your word of truth, discerning how we are to move forward, discerning what ought to change in our life as a result of the study of your word. So Jesus, I pray for all of us right now. Have your way among us. Don't let us leave here unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, anytime the gospel moves forward into new territory, there are new challenges that have to be overcome. Uh, For example, when I moved to Thailand, I was a missionary in Thailand for uh, a little over a year after I graduated from college. And being a missionary in a different culture, you got to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to make the gospel presentation be clear to the people I'm trying to reach in here? Well, when I was in college, I had been a part of Campus Crusade. In Campus Crusade, many of you, who's been impacted by Campus Crusade, also known as Crew? Yeah, a large part. We got some staff members of Crew back here, I know. Right? Crew is this incredible ministry on college campuses that teach and invest in college students and disciple them towards faith in Christ. I had been deeply changed in my college years because of Campus Crusade. Well, they have these four spiritual laws in Campus Crusade, and the first one, oh, Allie, you're gonna, I'm going to butcher this right now. You're going to be so mad at me for getting this wrong. The first one is something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Right? So when I go to Thailand, my understanding of how I share the gospel with people, how I communicate the good news of the Bible, is the first thing I want to communicate is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Here's the problem. That works in America where people have an understanding of what God is. But when I was in Thailand, I was living in a country that was 98% Theravada Buddhist that had many, many, many different gods, many, 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 many different versions of angels and demons and different idols that would be prayed to on any different, different occasion. So if I came and said to them, the first thing you know is this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, they would say, which God? And so one of the obstacles I confronted in Thailand was I had to figure out who are these people that I'm trying to reach? What, what do they believe? And how do I make sure that what I'm teaching about the Bible is very clearly received? Because we all come from different starting places. We all come from different backgrounds. And the gospel is true and clear. The gospel has never changed. But sometimes there are obstacles when you go into a new territory that you have to make sure you're being clear with what the gospel is in order not to confuse. Now, I want you to think about us in Chicago right now. The Chicago we're living in right now is a very different Chicago than even 10 years ago. Culturally, belief-wise, where people are coming from and what their expectations are, what experiences they've had with religion. Now, you've never thought about this before, but I want you to imagine for a second, if you know we are a church that deeply values evangelism. I go out with a team nearly every week evangelizing, and I'm always inviting you into that. But if you were going to communicate the gospel... In, in this city in Chicago, what obstacles, think about this in your own mind, think about this, what obstacles would you be confronted with that you would need to figure out, how do I, 
help this person understand the gospel with clarity? What obstacles would stand in your way here in Chicago? If you've never taken the time to think about that, that's worthy of your time if you want to be a faithful ambassador for Christ. What philosophies are people struggling with? What philosophies that are not true, that are not real, are people believing that we need to come alongside and expose those and at the same time teach the truth? Today we come to this breakthrough passage in the book of Acts. It is breakthrough because what I mean is the gospel is now breaking forward into new territory. So far in the book of Acts, what we've seen is Jesus has ascended, and he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a critical verse for the study of Acts and for the understanding of the church's history, Jesus, before he ascended, said this. He said, you will receive power to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, if you know this, say it with me, in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In today's passage, the gospel breaks forward into Samaria. It's that moment where the gospel is going into new territory, and there's going to be some new obstacles that have to be overcome. Because so far, the disciples, every story we've read has pretty much been in Jerusalem and Judea. They haven't broken forward into totally different cultural backgrounds, totally different cultural difficulties and obstacles that need to be overcome. So the gospel breaks forward into Samaria today. Now, here's what I want to cover. In this passage, a good part of Acts chapter 8, I want to reveal three core obstacles that that this disciple, Philip, and the other apostles had to figure out how to overcome as the gospel broke forward into Samaria. And then I want to think about what that means for us as 21st century Christians trying to bring the gospel into our own territory with the obstacles we're trying to overcome. So obstacle number one, was the cultural context of Samaria. The first obstacle was the cultural context of Samaria. Let's begin in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Let's pause there. First of all, it starts by saying what? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the very previous sermon that was just given last week in the last few verses. For the first time, a great persecution was coming on the church. If you remember, the deacon Stephen, he had been killed. The first martyr that we're aware of in the New Testament era. He was killed. And what happened was this persecution came over this church. Everyone had been doing life together. They had had trouble. They had had problem. But all of a sudden, there's these persecutions that are severe. Death. And the apostles and the disciples scatter throughout the known land. This is very interesting. You know, what I find interesting about this is the the, the apostles knew that they were supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But so far, they had huddled up in Jerusalem rather than going. And what God does is rather than allowing them to stay stagnant in one place, he permits persecution knowing that the end result of persecution will be the gospel going to new territory. Isn't that amazing? God can even use persecution for his glory. That's important to remember. 
But they go about, they're scattered, and they're scattered where? It tells us that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, what is Samaria? We're going to need some background here on Samaria if we're going to understand this passage at all. What's Samaria? Now, the Jews in Jerusalem and the people who were calling themselves the Jews or the Hebrews who lived up in the northern part of Israel in the Samaritan region, those two people did not get along. There was terrible ethnic conflict between the folks who were Hebrews who lived in Samaria and the folks who were Hebrews who, who came from Hebrew descent who lived in Jerusalem and Judea. They did not get along. Here's why. There was history there were hundreds of, uh, there were centuries of history between the two of them. At one time, all of Israel had been united under King David in the Old Testament. It was all united. But then what happened is that it got split after King Solomon, David's son, and it broke into two separate nations. There was the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. And at times, the tension between these two nations was so hostile that they actually went to civil war with each other. This is one of the terrible tragedies of the Old Testament. We see when there's bad leadership, when there's bad kings, the entire nation of Israel ends up at civil war with itself. That's why good leadership is so important. But then what happens is the northern, northern uh, nation and the southern nation, the northern nation gets taken captive by Assyria. And Assyria comes and intermingles Assyrians along with the people who are living in the northern nation. Meanwhile, those in the southern nation consider themselves to be purebreds. They've never been conquered so far. They will eventually in 586 BC. But in 722 BC, the northern nation was conquered and they became mixed. Half Hebrew descent, half Assyrian descent, half mixed with the nations around them. And they began to be called Samaritans. And, and the, the Jews living in Jerusalem would look down on them saying, you're only half truly Hebrew. You're half all the other nations. Now that actually, it went both ways. Those in Samaria looked down on the Jews who were living in Jerusalem and they said, actually, we're the ones who truly have the historical records. They actually had their own mountain, Mount Gerizim. You can go there today where they believe God spoke to them. They built their own temple, which was destroyed. Even though God had said there should only be one temple in Jerusalem, the northern nation built their own temple. That's how hostile the tension was between these two. They despised each other. A number of times in the New Testament, Jesus breaks through this, this tension. And you, like, for example, Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman at the well. He, he basically broke through every cultural line you're not supposed to break through. First of all, Jesus, a rabbi, speaking to a woman. Secondly, Jesus speaking to a Samaritan. That didn't happen. He was doing what all the Jews in Jerusalem knew you weren't supposed to do. Now, what does Philip do? Philip is scattered He's a disciple. He's scattered as a result of persecution. And where does he go? To the one place everyone knew you're not supposed to go, to Samaria. He goes right there. He says, where am I not supposed to go? Where's off limits? There? Okay, I'm going. And then, and then he goes with the gospel. And he begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And what does God do through the ministry of Philip? Not only does he give power to the proclamation of Philip's preaching, which, by the way, he was not a trained preacher. 
This was not one of the apostles. This was one of the disciples, someone who was following, who was part of the church, who was scattered. He goes and he begins proclaiming, and then what happens? The Lord shows up with power. All of a sudden, miracles start happening. You know, in your life, if you become a proclaimer of God's word regularly, you know what you're going to see happen very regularly? The power of God show up in the middle of your ministry. If you are a Christian who is not used to proclaiming and stating and putting words to the gospel of Jesus Christ, my guess is very rarely will you see the power of God show up in a conversation like this. But if you form the regular habit in your life of speaking about Jesus with those who are far from God and breaking through cultural barriers and making sure that everyone around you knows the love of Jesus Christ, you know what's going to happen in your life? You're going to have story after story after story of miraculous, powerful breakthrough as the gospel goes forward, not because of your strength, but because God is with you. One of my heroes, a man named D.L. Moody, I went to a seminary, uh, Moody Seminary in downtown Chicago. Um, One of the reasons I love Moody Seminary and I picked Moody Seminary is because they're known for grit. They're known for the grind. They're known for being downtown in the the struggle at all. And that came from D.L. Moody, the great Chicago evangelist from a previous generation. When D.L. Moody arrived in Chicago, he was a totally average man. He had, he had a third grade education. He could barely read. He had more questions about the Bible than he had answers for the Bible. And he gets to Chicago, and a group of pastors get around him, and he says, tell me where I need to go with the gospel. What can I do? And they chuckled at him a little bit, and he got to know the land of Chicago a little, and they said, whatever you do, don't go to little hell. He said, what's little hell? They said, That's, it's right over there. It's our, it's our near north neighborhood of Chicago now is what they called little hell back then. He said, don't, don't go to little hell. That's where all the violence is. That's where people die. That's where it's really difficult. Go anywhere else but there. D.L. Moody, you want to know about Chicago? We'll tell you all about Chicago. Just for your own safety, don't go to little hell. You know what D.L. Moody did? He said, thanks, pastors. And then he made a beeline to little hell. And he established a children's ministry that was reaching hundreds of children out of one of the most difficult neighborhoods in Chicago at that period of time and established the ministry of D.L. Moody in the city of Chicago. Where am I not supposed to go? Where is it difficult? Okay, that's where I'm going. That's the mindset of the Christian. That's what Philip did. That's what this church does. Samaria was a specific plan in God's unfolding of the gospel. There was an order to it. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, in our day and age, we are living in the ends of the earth time. We're bringing the gospel to the nations. Just a few months ago, I had up here a team of four that we prayed over as we sent them to the Middle East, to some of the most dangerous lands in the nation, in the, in, on the globe, to preach the gospel. And they'll be a part of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here, we're dealing with the gospel breaking forward into Samaria. And as I showed, there were some cultural difficulties It's where you weren't supposed to go. There was heat. There was tension. It was difficult. I want to ask you a question. Where is your Samaria? I'm I'm spiritualizing this passage a little bit by asking that question. I understand, but I think it's significant. I need to ask you the question. Where is your Samaria? Where is it that you have always had in your mindset, I'll share the gospel with a lot of people. My ain't going there. I'll share the gospel with a lot of people. There, there are some places that I'm quite comfortable with going. That's way outside of my comfort zone because everything I know about that is that's not good. 
Where's your Samaria? Where's your little hell? Where's the place that you've been conditioned to say, that's probably not the best use of my time? Where's darkness that you've been called specifically, you, with your story, to step in and to be the light? If you are not being stretched in your ministry in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not understanding this passage. Christians are always stretching themselves into the uncomfortable. They're always growing. They're always going somewhere new. They're always proclaiming to someone new. They're always asking, where is the gospel not going forward? Where is their darkness? Where is Satan lurking? That's where I need to be. Where is your Samaria? And perhaps the more difficult question for you is, why are you not there yet? Obstacle number two. Get ready for this one. The occult practices that were happening in Samaria. The occult practices that were happening in Samaria. Philip shows up. He proclaims the gospel. There's power. There's truth. People are putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And then we meet Simon. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Anybody who practices magic probably has that motivation behind them. They believe there's somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, Simon, was amazed. Now, Simon's story is not done yet. We're going to get to the rest of his story and the problems that we encounter with Simon, this new believer in Christ. But first, let's deal with this very difficult thing that's taking place, which is Simon was a magician and a practicer of the occult. Now, I don't think that Simon was just a sleight-of-hand magician. I don't think he was doing card tricks. What I think is happening here is that Simon was practicing demonic practices that were manifesting themselves in powerful representations of spirituality And those dark representations of spirituality were intriguing to people that were looking on, and others were like a magnet drawn into his darkness. Now, before you think I'm teaching on the cuckoo, let me make sure you understand what I'm talking about. Because if your eyes haven't been opened, that cuckoo has been very present in our culture around us today. Today in Chicago, the occult is one of the fastest growing religions in our city, You only have to go on Facebook to find out exactly how many witch covens there are across this city. When I do evangelism, when I was preparing for, uh, I I used to run a big evangelism and apologetics outreach, I actually uh, snuck my way into a number of the covens, (laughs) not present on Facebook, in order to be a part of their conversations because I wanted to actually see what they were saying. I wanted to understand their mindset so that when I went out and I proclaimed the gospel, I knew what they were saying. I wanted to understand them. That's dangerous work, but that's what I wanted to make sure I was understanding. 
Today, the occult is one of the fastest growing religions in Chicago. Why? What is the occult? The occult is when Satan and his demonic forces, which are real, we are Christians who believe in the Bible and the worldview of the Bible, therefore we assume and believe that the occult, angels, demons exist around us. Demonic activity is that which is trying to pretend to be the light and drawing you into spiritual power when in fact it's darkness and they're leaving you high, dry, and ultimately dead. They promise you all the things that Christ promises you in an empty fashion. And all around us, people are being drawn to this, sometimes without us realizing that's what it is. Occultism always makes you feel authoritative and powerful. Why? All of a sudden, you're the one with the power. All of a sudden, you're the one that are dealing with uh, people's problems in a way that God would not be pleased with. I, just to, so you know, I've actually met with a number of folks who are deep in the occult world who have reached out to me for help. So be, be, again, I am not, we're talking about the real world. This is counseling that I do with folks. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. In the word of God, in the eyes of God, anybody who follows God should have nothing to do with occultism. Nothing. We do not go to fortune tellers. That's not what we do. We are not occultists. We are followers of Christ. Now, how is this manifesting itself? I'm going to go through a handful of ways just to open our eyes so we're aware of them. And my warning to you is as I do this, it is not to intrigue you. It is to say it's around you and you need to flee from it. Because Jesus, the word of God, says Christians should not in any way participate in this. You might remember when Brett Kavanaugh was uh, brought into, I know it could be a controversial figure even bringing his name up, but you might not have seen this story. When Brett Kavanaugh was brought into the Supreme Court, one of the leading stories that got told about during his Supreme Court uh, hearings was the magic resistance as the Brooklyn Covens were organizing to put hexes over the new Supreme Court justice. That was like front page articles that were being written in major headlines, You might not know about this one. How about Tom Brady? Tom Brady's wife is a witch. Now, that's not me applying titles to her. That's her own title. Here's here's Tom Brady uh, saying what uh, his wife asks him to do. He says, I have these little special stones and healing stones and protection stones, and she has me wear a necklace and take these drops she makes and say all these mantras. That's witchcraft. That's what that is. That was right after his Super Bowl win against the Rams. There are dozens of how-to spell books that are published every single year. In fact, if you go on Amazon, you'll see that these are some of the highest-selling books among particular age demographics, especially those under the age of 25. The occultism is rising tremendously through our teens. Here's two titles. The New Arcadia, A Witch's Handbook to Magical Resistance. Michael Hughes, 2018 Magic for the Resistance, Rituals and Spells for Change. There are hundreds of thousands of users on which popular blogging platforms like Tumblr and Instagram, if you hashtag the word witch, you will see millions upon millions of posts and charms and spells that people are toying with. I will add one more to you. I believe that the drugs that our youth are taking right now are literally bringing them directly into contact with the demonic. That's exactly what is happening. And if you don't believe that, just talk to someone who's taking those drugs, and they will tell you the story so you can know for yourself. Okay. Simon was a magician and an occultist. And he had a large following of people that were being drawn into this darkness. Now, what does Philip do? 
How does he conquer this moment? Does he go and put up dukes with Simon? Does he go and stage this great performance? No. What does he do? He walks into darkness. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ in faithfulness. And the spirit of God moves forward in power. That's what Christians do. You don't need to be Superman to take on an occultist. You need to be someone who knows how to talk about Jesus. You proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Satan flees at the name of Jesus Christ. Where you go when you're walking around somewhere and you're singing Amazing Grace, I assure you the demons are fleeing from your presence. They can't handle it. And so Philip shows up. He's untrained in this. We know nothing about his, his training. He, he hasn't gone through courses on dealing with the occult. All we know, he's a faithful carrier of the words of God. He goes into a dark place and he talks about Jesus. God shows up, does the miraculous, and people are believing everywhere. So much so that Simon himself believes. It's not the messenger that is important. It's the power of the message that you carry. Every follower of Christ is equipped with the strength to go into the darkest of places on this planet with the good news and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it. Now, let's just talk for a moment. Let's get real practical. I'm going into like occult world because I'm trying to explain this passage and raise the temperature for you so you know what you're up against. Okay? That's the world we're in. Welcome to church. Okay? So if you're new with us, (laughs) here we are. Okay? But I also want to make sure you realize something. The occult hides itself in many many subtle forms. You all are part of many, many relationships where people are suffering and struggling in any number of ways. And oftentimes our struggles have demonic portions of them. And people are being attacked and they're attacked. And if we had glasses to see, if we could put glasses on and we looked around, I'm sure when you walk down the streets of Chicago, you'd be like, Wow, I had no idea that was how deep the spiritual war we were in is. And when you're caring for people in your life, you have to be aware as a Christian that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You're up against a demonic warfare. And the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. We go in and we pray with people. And all in your life, you have people in darkness and hurting and in pain and suffering and chronic pain and generational pain. And guess who's there? You are. You're a Christian. You've got the power of Christ working through you. You've got the Holy Spirit and you know the word of God. So where does God call you? Right in the little hell. You show up and you preach. You say the word of God and God shows up with the power and does all the work. Now, I need to take a little bit of an excursus aside for a second to speak on something very important in this passage. There's a very confusing block of text here before I get to the last most important piece of this entire sermon, and I want to clarify it for us. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Simon has just believed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So let me translate that for you. The apostles, the big dogs, are down in Jerusalem. And they get wind through the grapevine that Samaria, those Samaritans, they're believing. Peter looks over at John and goes, do you think it's true? John's like, I don't know. That's kind of crazy. This is the ethnic tension. And so they go, we got to check this out with our own eyes. The, The apostles have to go and confirm that this is actually what's taking place here. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
they, they sent to them Peter and John, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Spirit. Okay, a few verses that have caused much, much headache in the history of Christianity. And let me see if I can bring a few minutes of clarity to us. Why is this controversial? Because in this text, what it seems like is happening is there's all these believers who have truly believed in Jesus Christ, been baptized in water, but have not received the Spirit yet. And then the apostles show up a little later, place their hands on them, then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them. You can see why that would be interesting, because at this church, we teach that once you believe in Jesus Christ, it is at that moment that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's at that moment when God changes your heart, regenerates your heart, is the language we use, and you get the Spirit immediately. So what's with this verse, where it seems like there was this two-stage process They believed, the Samaritans, and then later the apostles showed up and they placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you come from denominational backgrounds where what they believe is actually exactly what this verse says, that there are two stages to Christian belief. There's your first moment of belief, baptism in water, and then there's a second stage of baptism in the Holy Spirit that may come later. Okay? When I was in Thailand as a missionary, I was working around a lot of Pentecostal Christians, and every one of them was telling me that I needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I had only been baptized in water, and they kept saying to me, if you really want to be a powerful missionary, you're going to need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We can help you with that. And they were telling me I need to speak in tongues. They were going to have a whole little ceremony for me. And I remember in that time, deeply wrestling while I was in Thailand, saying, Lord, look, I want to be faithful. If there's more power to be had, I want to be an effective minister. I don't, I don't want to like be like, no, I don't want that. I, I want to be the most effective minister of the gospel I can. And if that's what you want me to do, then do it. But teach me from your word, Lord, because your word determines what's true. I'm trying to understand it. So here's this passage. Let me teach what I, I understand about this passage. I do not believe this is a normative principle for Christians. Why? Because Christians have a very important hermeneutic principle, how we study the Bible principle. That hermeneutic principle is on confusing confusing passages, we use scripture to interpret scripture. So we look at the entire counsel of God, we understand what is the normative principle, and when there are confusing passages, we do not normalize the confusing passages but we understand them in light of the normative principle taught in the entirety of God's counsel. Now, what is the normative principle in in Scripture? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, every follower of Christ, were made to drink of one spirit. That verse is the normative principle that we see all through the New Testament. There is no two-stage Christianity. There is no Christians and super-Christians. There is, you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gets put on you, and that is the normative principle every follower of Christ should have. You have every gift you will ever need as a follower of Christ with the Holy Spirit being given to you. At times in your life, the Holy Spirit will manifest itself in your life in very powerful, new, and fresh ways. But when you believe, the normal practices of Scripture is you're baptized in the Holy Spirit at that moment. This is a particular moment that is not normative. Why? Well, I don't know the the mind of God perfectly, but I can can guess why. I mean, reading this passage, the gospel is breaking forward into new territory where there were ethnic clashes, and I could totally see 
if, if, if the apostles had not come and been part of the Holy Spirit being outpoured on them, I could see how those ethnic clashes would continue in the New Testament church. And so God in his divine mercy looks down and says, okay, I'm going to hold this so the apostles can come so there's unity in the church. So the, there's this apostolic authority in that New Testament day right back in that first century. So no one's confused. The apostles aren't going around saying, I wonder if they really received the Holy Spirit or not. That could be one reason God held off the Holy Spirit. All that to say this is a benchmark event, not a normative event. God can do whatever he's going to do in any time and space. But I need you to understand the clarity of God's counsel on this. There is no two-stage Christianity. That's not what we teach at this church. You believe and you're baptized in the Holy Spirit at that moment. Okay. Let's get into some really tough stuff here. Obstacle number three, the dynamics of power. The dynamics of power. Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I'll tell you, we have lost our ability to insult people. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many village of the Samaritans. Simon shows up, and I believe he was a true follower of Christ. I don't think the situation is that he had not accepted Jesus at this moment. Even that could be the situation. Some commentators believe that. But earlier on, it said even Simon believed and was baptized. I don't think that's a deceptive verse. I think he actually put his faith in Jesus. But just like all of us, we have these moments of weakness, now, what was Simon's moment of weakness? There's actually a sin in the church. We call it simony today, which is when you try to buy power in the church with money. That happens all the time. People try to think their money can get them certain positions of authority within the church. But I think there's something deeper than just simony going on. Simon is attracted to power. Simon wants to be someone in control. He wants to be someone in authority. He wants to be in the room where it happens, okay? He wants to be the one who calls the shots, who people look up to, who people acknowledge, who people think that he's someone. Why? Because we already know about Simon. People used to call him great. Remember that? We just read that in that passage. He's used to having the eyes of people on him. By the way, what is his money? His money that he's offering is dirty money. It's the money he acquired under tricking people and stealing using demonic occultic practices. Now he's offering that back to the church to try to get power in the church. There was a theologian philosopher named Reinhold Niebuhr, 20th century American philosopher who wrote much on the topic of idolatry. And he talks about power in some pretty powerful ways. He says this, man is insecure and he seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power. He pretends he is not limited. The ego, which falsely makes itself the center of existence in its pride and will to power, inevitably subordinates other life to its will and thus does injustice to other life. Okay, let me interpret that for you. Niebuhr is looking out over humanity. He's saying, look, there is this deep, this deep 
insecurity that lives in the human heart. What's that insecurity about? It's an insecurity that you realize you're not in control of anything that happens to you. Are you in in control? No, none of us can control anything. You can't control if you're going to get COVID or not. You can do everything you possibly can to seclude yourself. And this can still get you. You can't control what happens when you walk out of this place. We live in Chicago. Anything can happen to you on any given day. And Niebuhr says, look, the reality that we are out of control is a deep insecurity in the human experience of life. And so what we do is we grasp at control through power. And what happens is when you become someone who's grasping at control through attaining power, you end up literally hurting others in in your path. Because you see other people as a chance for you to get a little bit of control in life. And even though you might do it in subtle ways, your grasping for power is inflicting harm on other people around you. We scramble to fight and maintain control over life. We scramble for authority. We scramble for control. And all the while, we don't really care about the people we're hurting in in our path. How do we do this? Let me give you some examples that maybe hit home for all of us. Abuse. Abuse is a clear one. Abuse of any form, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, verbal. What's abuse? Abuse is trying to have authority over another person to, to, to proclaim your dominance because then, then you're in control. See, you're not in control in a mutual relationship. In a mutual relationship, you're, you're both speaking, you're caring for each other, you're loving for each other, and there's a sense of like, I don't control my own destiny. We're in this thing together. But abuse is when, when one person says, no, I control you. What is that? It's grasping for power. Why? Because of an insecurity that says you're not in control. You know, parents can do this with their kids. You've got this God-given authority that God's given you, a real power over these little people that you're called the shepherd. But when you become domineering over your children, which by the way, I find my, look, parents, I find this in myself. I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now. This happens in my worst moments. When I become domineering over my children, what am I doing? It's an insecurity that I'm out of control that I can't control what's happening around me. And so I I grasp for control in any way I can and exert that in a way that harms my children. See what that is? It's feeding my insecurity. How about at work? You all have jobs, you're doing something, you're in work somewhere. You get given a little bit of control at the office. You ever see someone who gets a little new authority in the office? All of a sudden, they're a whole different person. They know how to run every meeting. All of a sudden, it's a totally different person that shows up. What's going on? You gave them authority. And rather than using that authority to pour it out in the service of others and lift everyone else up around them, all of a sudden, they know everything and they become domineering and we do it too. We do this just even in in friendships, right? Sometimes you can be in a friendship and, and you can take a moment of suffering with another purpose and use it to establish your own authority and power over somebody. Someone comes to you hurting, And all of a sudden, they're the weak one. You're the strong one. Rather than exposing that we're the weakest, we're the ones who are the most sinful, we're the ones who actually need the most grace in our lives, we see they're coming to us in their weakness as a chance to exert our authority. We're the ones who have our life together. What's happening there? It's an insecurity. There's an insecurity that we're not in control. And here's a moment to grasp control and dominate over somebody else. Tim Keller says this so well. He says this, If you knew that the power that you have has been given to you as a gift of God by grace, you would be both more relaxed and secure and more humble and more just. If you think you earned your position through your own merit and works, you will continue to be both scared and cruel. 
See, this is where the gospel changes it all. This is what Simon did not understand. What did Jesus do? He stepped out of his position of authority where he had all control and power and he became a servant, humbling himself, using his authority that was his. He was the king. He ruled and reigned. And he became a washer of feet, dying on the cross to lift up and serve those he loved. The life of Jesus is marked by servant, humble, caring, and passion for other people. And when you believe in Jesus, something happens to the human soul. What happens is the insecurity is met. It's not just a new list of how you ought to behave. It's that the insecurity is met. And when the insecurity is met, you no longer have to dominate others through control of power because your, your destiny is not in your own hands uncontrolled anymore. Through the gospel, Jesus died for you and, listen to the word, secured your eternity. Here's what that means. No, you can't control what happens to you today. But guess who can? The guy who went to the cross for you and shed his blood out of love for you. That's pretty good news. The one who sustains the universe by the word of his power, he's for you and nothing can separate you from him because you've been united with Christ through faith in Jesus. That guy is in control of your every second. He knows it all and he's got you. Now, if you know that and you believe that, where is there room for insecurity in here? You tell me. What what, what are we afraid of? What do I need to grasp a power for anymore? He's got it. He's got it all under control. This is why trust in the sovereignty of God is a staple of the Christian diet. We wake up every day and we say, you are in control, I'm not, praise God, hallelujah. Because when I'm in control, I dominate over other people. Now look, what this means is when you believe in Jesus, there is a new way you relate to people. You're humble. You're sensitive. You're generous. You're filled with grace upon grace. This is not just for the spiritual elite. This is a Christian posture in the world. It's our history. This is how Christians always engage. And when Christians get caught up in power plays, vying for power over one another, it makes me sick. I see pastors do this. You know, when I see pastors, the number one way pastors stumble is I see them caught up in power. What is that? When your insecurities are met by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've got no reason to grasp for power and be cruel to anybody. You take that power that Christ has given you through the Holy Spirit and you literally lay it at the feet of other people. You say, I am the weakest among all of us. Let me serve you and wash your feet. Let me close by saying this. This passage is a normal guy doing extraordinary things. Philip, a faithful Christian, filled by the Holy Spirit, the first to preach the gospel into Samaria. The great D.L. Moody put it this way, if this world's going to be reached, I'm convinced it must be done by men and women of average talent. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. Take what was said here today. Form it in our hearts. Make this true. Make us your faithful followers of Christ who do not grasp the powers if it's something to dominate over somebody else, but receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus to spread the love of Christ among the nations. Give us a courage and a boldness. And I pray for those sitting in here today that have never known that security that Christ brings. Form it in them today. New life in Jesus, I pray. New life in Jesus in this room, I pray. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts right now. Those who need Jesus in this moment, fill them with the stability and the security of Christ on the cross, claiming them as his own. I pray in Jesus' holy name.